let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We're beginning a um, new study series this morning that um, the plan would be will take us till about the end of May, Lord willing. Although, uh, as the Spirit leads us differently, we may have some other studies mixed in because we always want to follow what the Lord is telling us. But we're going to be working through this book of Philippians. I will state up front that I love this book. This is my favorite book of the Bible. And that's not why we're studying it. Um, we're, we're studying it because it is a powerful letter that Paul writes to an exemplary church. And the theme of this letter, as we kind of just heard in that video, um, is, is very wonderful and I think it's very needed uh, for the church. Not just this church, but the church worldwide. Um, and, and specifically, really, for the American church, because churches in other countries, even ones that are repressed, are thriving. But the American church, to me, is very dull at the moment and very confused. Um, and I think this book really has such a great message uh, and such a great theme. And so I want to just kind of give you the theme up front, um, and then we're going to kind of dive into the book, the first couple of verses this morning. Uh, it, the theme, or at least the theme that I've come up with for the book of Philippians is how to live a joyful, contented life that exalts Jesus Christ in every way. How to live a joyful, contented life that exalts Jesus Christ in every way. Now that's a good goal for believers, right? That should be, oh come on, that was really anemic. That's a good goal for believers, right? that we would have joyful, contented lives that exalt Jesus Christ in every way. That, there's no question that that should be our goal, and really not even our goal, but our norm. That, that that should describe us in every single way. Now, we know that's not easy. We know it's not easy to be joyful. We know it's probably even harder to be content in all things. And then to represent Christ well, to exalt Christ in everything that we do, every word, every action, every thought, that, that we would model Jesus, that we would glorify him in every step. That's, that's not going to be easy. In fact, it almost seems impossible. But Paul's message in Philippians is, it's not only not impossible, to use a double negative, it's not only possible, it's the expectation. It's what should describe us. There shouldn't be any question as believers that that should be us, that we're joyful, we're content, and we're exalting Christ in everything. And that's the essence of this whole book. As I said earlier while we were singing, Romans 12, Paul writes, this is your reasonable act of worship. This, this isn't unreasonable. This isn't, this isn't, well, just for super Christians. This is what everybody who trusts Jesus Christ should look like. And yet we know that it's not in our own lives, in the lives of others, in the life of the church. Now, this is eminently possible because we have the Spirit of God. And if nothing's possible with, nothing's impossible with God, then if we have the Spirit of God, nothing's impossible, right? So it is certainly possible that we can live joyful, contented lives that exalt Christ in everything, or Jesus wouldn't tell us to do it. God doesn't give us expectations that can't be met. So he says here in this book, this is not only possible, but it's expected. Now, what I love about Philippians is that pretty much everything in it is positive. Everything in it kind of lifts up your soul and encourages you and is 
helpful in terms of how we're called to live. And by doing that, it gives us spiritual perspective and it, it focuses our hearts on what is most important. It points to Christ. I'll talk about that in a minute. It teaches us practical ways that we can be joyful and be contented. And it teaches us what it looks like to trust in the Lord uh, no matter what the circumstances. If you want to divide up the book into chapters, and they, they pretty much, this book pretty much does divide into the chapter divisions thematically. So let me give you a theme for each chapter uh, that'll just be kind of foundational. Chapter one reveals the purpose of life. Everybody wants to know what life is all about, why we live. Well, chapter one tells us that. Chapter two teaches us the attitude that we have to have. Attitude is so key in terms of being a believer. Attitude is so key in terms of moving through life and seeing life from a certain perspective. So in chapter two, he says, this is the attitude you've got to have. In chapter three, he points us toward the ultimate goal of our lives. And in chapter four, which is my favorite, he says, this is how to be content in everything. Now, I hope by the end of our study in the book in the month of May that you'll love this book as much as I do. And I hope my joy and my passion for it will, will come through. It is really a fantastic book of Scripture. And I want to encourage you as we go along, it's only four chapters long, I want to encourage you to read it once a week at least, to get it into your heart, to to just embrace it and, and have the words just permeate you. So when we're studying each week, you go, oh, I know what that says. I know where that's going because I've read it so many times. And by the end of May, hopefully we'll have read this, what, 13, 14 times? That would be wonderful. When was the last time you read a book of Scripture 13 times? So let's get this into our hearts and let's really ask the Lord to strengthen us as we study. Okay, let's dive into it this morning. I want to give you kind of a kind of an overview and a foundation for what we're going to study in the weeks ahead. So let's read um, first six verses. That's going to be our study today. Uh, and then we'll uh, look at the text and take some notes this morning. Let's interact with the text. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes when we study Paul's letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Romans. Sometimes when we study these, we kind of look at those first few verses and we know they're all kind of the same. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, to the people at blank. Uh, grace and peace to you and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we kind of we just maybe sometimes emotionally and mentally glide over those verses because we think, well, they're all kind of the same and they don't really have a lot to say to me. And yet, every word in Scripture is profitable, right? So we need to pay attention. And I, I've read Philippians, I can't tell you how many times. I, I'm not bragging by saying that. I'm just saying I've, I've spent a lot of time in this book. And I don't know if I've ever until this week really sat down and looked at verses 1 to 4. 
And there's a lot of great encouragement, a lot of great truth here. So what I'd like to do this morning is really kind of focus in on verses 3 to 5 because they really give us an encouragement of our role as believers. Now, Paul obviously uh, loved this church because of all the churches that are mentioned in the New Testament, Philippi was the most mature. It was the most spiritually faithful, not only to him, but to the work of ministry. And this verse kind of stood, this, this church kind of stood as an example. So instead of what he does in his other books, writing about uh, confronting sin or dealing with issues that were causing disunity or trying to correct theology or, or challenging them, come on, you got to get going here, you're kind of dull and complacent and, and, and you need to, to move forward. Paul here commends the Philippians and he says, this is great. You guys are doing a wonderful job. And because he's able to not deal with theological mess or disunity or some kind of garbage that's taking place, he's able to get right to the practical application. So this is an encouraging book because you don't have to wade through why they're arguing over how spiritual gifts are used or why they don't love each other or, or all that kind of stuff. That, that's, that's discouraging sometimes to see how the church can become. But Philippians is the church that we should be. It's the ideal church. So he, he writes and he says, great, now that you have done the things that you need to do spiritually, now let me teach you then how to live that out practically. And that's what Paul's doing because at this point he's sitting in a jail. And he's able to talk very personally and very experientially about how to live. And in everything that Paul does, and I want you to get this about Philippians from the outset, in everything Paul does in the book of Philippians and in all his other books, Paul points to Jesus Christ. In our lives, everything that we do should point to Jesus Christ. It should not point at us. It should not point at others. It should only point to Christ. And to prove how much Paul points to Christ in the book of Philippians, I counted them. He mentions Jesus 52 different times in four chapters. So 13 a chapter, one for every week of the year, if we want to do it that way. 52 times Paul says, look at Christ, look at Christ, look at Jesus, look at him, look at Christ, look at Jesus, look at him, look at Christ. He just, it's just permeating the whole book. I don't think you can go more than three or four verses anywhere in Philippians without Jesus being mentioned. You talk about an ideal life, that's how we should live. There shouldn't be a day this week where we don't talk about Jesus to somebody. There shouldn't be a day this week where our focus isn't on how do I, how do I uh, please the Lord? How do I, how do I uh, promote Jesus Christ, if we can use that word? H how do I show Christ through how I live and how I speak and how I love? And Paul says there's a practical application that comes out of knowing Jesus and out of uh, what it means to love Jesus. So if we want to understand what it looks like to be a mature believer, if you're not already there, and even if you are, we always need to go farther, right? So if we want to know what a mature believer looks like, how they think, how they talk, how they act, then Philippians is the textbook. And if you're not there yet in your maturity, I, I really hope that this will be a powerful motivation for you to be more like Christ because the end result is so wonderful and so attractive that it should spur us on to maturity. And if you are moving on to maturity, if you're progressing and you're growing in the Lord, this is going to encourage you. 
This is going to stay. If you stay faithful to the Lord and you move forward, no matter what the circumstances are, you can count it all joy because God will be sufficient for you. Now, to understand that and to kind of lay the foundation for this morning, let's look at three different phrases real quickly. I'll try not to preach too long here this morning, but, but let's just highlight a couple phrases that are here in these verses that we tend to kind of glide over. First of all, look at what he says in verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, wouldn't you like to have someone say that about you? Every single time I think about you, I'm so grateful. Every time I think about you, every time your name crosses my mind, every time you come into my heart, I go right to the Lord and I say, thank you so much, Lord, for that person. I'd love to be that type of person. Now, there's no way we can be that type of person if we're negative or if we're surly or if we're divisive or we're chronically complaining. If we're unhappy or or we're critical, other people aren't going to say, I just praise the Lord for you. Lord, I'm just so thankful that that other person is so constantly unhappy and miserable and not trusting in you and critical and that they talk about people. But Lord, I praise you for that. Right? He thinks about them fondly because they're walking with the Lord and they're doing what they're supposed to do in terms of trusting Christ. And as he looks at them, he says, this is what it looks like to be a spirit-filled believer. And because you're a spirit-filled believer, it doesn't hinder people from understanding the Lord. It helps them to understand the Lord. And it helps them to understand the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. Now, that's why this group was so different. Because when you look at the other churches throughout the New Testament, that's not what you see. you got to go all the way back to Acts 2.42 to talk about the church really being effective. And we're not talking hundreds and thousands of years. We're talking maybe 10, 20 years from the time of Pentecost to the time of the churches in the New Testament where Paul's having to write them and say, what are you doing? In Acts 2, they gathered together every day. They prayed and they fellowshiped and they ate together and they encouraged one another and they taught and they studied and they talked about the Lord. And God blessed that so much that the Bible says every single day they added to the fellowship. Not just people that were coming, hey, what's going on? This is pretty cool. People that were getting radically saved and transformed out of their self-sufficiency and came and said, we want to be with other believers who are saved too. So when you look at Acts 2, you see this group of believers that were strong in their faith and were bold in their witness, and that everybody was of one mind, and if you needed something, somebody shared it. There was no hesitation. It was just wonderful unity and fellowship together, and it says they praised the Lord joyfully. Anybody want to be part of a church like that? I do. I want this church to be like that. 
Every day that we'd gather in some way or we'd get together, we'd call each other and say, isn't the Lord good? And we get together like you did this morning. We just praise the Lord with our voices and we lift our hearts to the Lord and then we'd study together and then we'd gather for prayer and we'd share. And if somebody has a need, we'd be like, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? What can I, what can I do for you? And then where faith would be strong, then as we go out from here to our work and our business and our homes, that we'd be sharing the Lord, we'd be talking about Jesus, and that, and that we'd be strong. That's not exactly a description of the church in America in 2015. Quickly they slipped and slid from Acts 2 to being selfish and to compromising themselves morally, and, and to weakening themselves theologically. So what we see after Acts isn't surprising, but it's discouraging. That's why Philippi was such an encouragement to Paul, because he reads the letters and reads the reports from the other cities, and all he sees are problems. In Corinth, he has to write three letters. We don't even have one. And he has to go after all the problems. Corinthians, you're carnal and you're selfish and you're proud and you're fighting about who's the greatest and you're arguing over spiritual gifts and you're misusing your gifts and you're killing the faith and progression of new believers, not to mention any evangelism that might be going on. Corinth really embodies the, the greatest, most dangerous problems in a church. People who want to be more worldly than holy and people that are proud. Those two things will kill any church. If we want to love the world more than we want to love the word, we're dead in the water. And if we're arrogant, God will not bless us. He will fight us. So he looks at Corinth and he says, mm, you are doing what every pastor, what keeps them up at night. You are doing the very things, Corinthians, that are going to damage the witness and the ministry, that are going to offset prayer, and that are going to hinder any progress spiritually. Then he looks at Galatia, and he says, Galatians, your theology is poor. You're demanding that the Jews will still follow, excuse me, that the Gentiles will still follow the law to the letter. Even though we've been redeemed by Christ, you're still holding them to the letter of the law. So there was legalism in the church in Galatia. And then in Colossae, there were false teachers. And they were spreading unbiblical doctrine. And either they didn't have the maturity or the courage to, to, to fight it and to stop it. So by extension, many people in the Colossian church were still struggling with sin. In Thessalonica, there was poor theology about uh, the return of the Lord and, and about uh, the second coming and about the resurrection. So there was no sense of urgency. In Thessalonica, they were complacent because they didn't believe that at any moment Jesus could come back. So they just kind of sat and, and, and became spiritual couch potatoes. And then in Ephesus... They really didn't appreciate God's grace and Christ's sacrifice as much as they should. And eventually, when you get to Revelation 2, uh, the Spirit of God scolds the church at Ephesus and says, you've left your first love. Your, your eye has wandered to different things like a spouse that cheats. Your, your eye has wandered, and you don't love me the way that you used to. You've been unfaithful. Your heart has betrayed you. And, and now you're, you're, you're drifting away from the Lord. So Galatia, Corinth, Thessalonica, Ephesus, Colossae, 
All of those churches had problems. But when Paul looks at Philippi, he says, every time I think of you guys, I thank the Lord. I'm so grateful for you because you bring joy to me and you bring joy to Christ through your faith and your love and your humility and your sacrifice. Now, this is a very important spiritual principle that we need to get this morning. That as members of the body of Christ, we are either a source of health and strength or a source of weakness and disease. We are all members of the body of Christ. Think about that literally and figuratively. And the biblical calling is to build one another up in the faith. But 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that as members of the body of Christ, each person has a different role. Some are hands, some are feet. Some are mouths, some are ears, some are eyes, and so on and so on. Now, you may never want to speak in front of a crowd like I'm doing this morning. You may say, I can't ever sing in the choir. I would be too embarrassed. It's not my gift. That's fine. But you know what? You may have a greater gift of mercy than somebody that sings in the choir. You may have greater faith than somebody who preaches. You may want to serve behind the scenes and never be visible, but you're faithful to it. Here's the key. How are we using those gifts? Are we using them to edify and support one another and the body as a whole, or are we using them to tear down and discourage? I think one of the saddest things that I have experienced as a pastor throughout the years, and I've talked to other pastors about this, is to see people that are talented and gifted who are are using and misusing those gifts to edify themselves. And that has such a detrimental effect on the body. And don't forget, this is Christ's body. So if we do damage to the body of Christ, we're doing damage to Christ. See, we don't always think about church that way. We don't always think about it, it's just church, it's where I go, and if I don't like it, then I'll go, and and that's fine. If the Lord doesn't have you here, you have our blessing, but if the Lord does have you here, then defend it. Don't be critical of other churches, don't be critical of other believers. Why? Because it's the body of Christ, and if I'm critical of the body of Christ, then I'm critical of Christ, because it's his body. So he says... As part of the body of Christ, each of us has gifts. Each of us has talents. And our greatest desire as members of the body of Christ should be to be a source of health and strength and support to one another, to build each other up, to give each other greater resolve, to encourage and challenge each other. You need to resist the world. I need to resist the world. Let's do it together. Let's mature in our faith together. Let's call on the Lord together. Let's praise his name together. Let's share the gospel together because God has made us co-laborers in the gospel. I don't work independently of you and you don't work independently of me. We labor together. Each of us has a different role. Each of us has different gifts. Each of us has different interests. And each of us has different people that we are impacting that the other person can impact. So our job as believers is to build one another up and be strong. Now, the opposite of that is if we're not building health and strength, we're building sickness. And we become like a virus. And that can take on one of four different roles. There are four ways that we can be a sickness in the body. One is to be a sore. You ever had a sore that just kind of won't go away? 
You put cream on it, it just doesn't get much better. Sometimes we can be a sore, just kind of an irritant, something that causes pain. And I know I'm talking negatively here, but we need to hear this to be able to understand how to live. So we can be a sore. Second, we can be a callus. What's a callus? You press on it and you don't feel anything. Sometimes we can be a spiritual callus in the church, unfeeling to the Lord, kind of dull in our passion, not wanting to step out of anything that's uncomfortable for us. And what that does is it makes us spiritually dry and lukewarm. Or third, we can be an atrophied muscle, a muscle that's seldom used, that's comfortable just always being at rest, taking in but not exercising faith to make the body stronger. And the more your muscles atrophy, the more they atrophy. The more you don't use them, the less efficient they become. So we can become a sore or a callus or an atrophied muscle or fourth and probably the most damaging, we can become an actual infection in the body. Spreading disease, creating weakness, contaminating what's healthy. So we have to evaluate based on Philippians 1 chapter 3 that, that, that are we refreshing people spiritually? Are we strengthening people spiritually by how we live and how we talk and how we act? Or are we a drain on their spiritual progress? Paul says, every time I think of you, I thank the Lord. Oh, I want that to be said of me. I want that to be said of you. I want that to be said of this church. Every time I think of that person, every time I think of Harbor Rock Tabernacle, I thank the Lord. Oh, the ministry that we could have in Southeast Wisconsin, not to mention the world, if that was true of us, that we were really living for the Lord, we were really building up the body, we were really passionate about the Lord, so people look at us and go, I don't know what's going on in that church, but they are so full of joy. They love the Lord. They, they, they defend the body of Christ. They are really living for Christ. I thank God every time I remember you. Look at the second phrase in verse 5. He says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. Look at the next line. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Your participation in the gospel. Every person who trust in Jesus Christ to save them, which I hope is every single person in this room, every person who trusts Jesus Christ to save them has then been given the Holy Spirit to empower and to give spiritual gifts. Now every person has the awesome role and responsibility to serve the Lord and His body. And that is not just an add-on when we get time it is a full-time calling. How do I know that? Because Paul's not writing to pastors. Paul's not writing to missionaries. Paul's not writing to people that have dedicated their life to, to full-time work. He is saying, believers in the church, believers in Philippi, you are our key partners in ministry. And you need to remember, as I need to remember, that we all represent Christ at every moment of every day. Now notice in the text that, that this participation is not just as believers. It's not just, all right, we're all believers. We need to act as believers. Good to go. No, he says there's a job that we have. It's the fellowship and sharing in the work 
of the gospel. Now, that doesn't just mean telling people Jesus Christ took your sins on himself and went to the cross and died for you and rose again and you can have forgiveness of sins. That, that is an integral part of what we do. Every one of us needs to be doing it and we know how to do it. We sang it earlier. In three lines, we give the whole gospel. We know how to share the gospel. We're just hesitant. We're nervous. We're embarrassed. We don't want to be intrusive. We're, we're worried what people are going to say. We know about the gospel. Come on, you've been in this church long enough to know the gospel. You can share somebody that Christ died and rose again for your sins. So he says, we're partners in this. This truth has redeemed us. It's delivered us from sin. And that news is great and has to be shared. So we're partners in sharing the gospel. But that's not the only thing. The truth of the gospel, look at the verse, also has to be evidenced in how we live. Because if we just speak the words of the gospel... And we don't evidence that the gospel has taken hold in our lives and fundamentally transformed us. Then it will seem to those that don't know Christ that the words we're saying don't match how we live. And they'll say, what's the point? You tell me I need to confess my sin. You tell me I need to trust in Jesus Christ. You tell me I need to give my life to him and that he will redeem me from sin. You're telling me that the bondage of sin will be broken in my life and, and I will be free and God will indwell me and that I will be called a child of God. You're telling me that, right? Yes, that's the gospel. You get it. Good. Now, why doesn't your life look different? Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm progressing in my faith. Well, good. When's that going to take hold? Because you're telling me that the work of Christ transforms you from the moment of salvation. Don't you think that's a legitimate question for somebody to ask? Why doesn't your life look different? You're telling me that I need to give my life to Christ, and you're telling me that that'll change everything. So why don't you look different? See, that's a legitimate question that people can ask. And if they don't see in our lives that everything has changed, that sin no longer has control over us, that we don't have to be discouraged and depressed and full of anxiety because he's sufficient and that we can trust even when we have times of confusion and doubt, even when circumstances are bad, that God is faithful and we're going to press on strong, bold, confident in prayer and that our lives are different than they used to be because of the blood of Jesus Christ. When somebody sees that, the gospel will become attractive. But if they don't see that, they don't care. They'll look at it and go, I don't know. The words sound great, and the concept's wonderful, but I don't see it in you. Partakers of the work of the gospel. Not just sharing how we live. And notice that Paul says, every line is key. Every word is key. He says, your participation in the gospel, look at it, from the first day. In other words, the calling to stand for the Lord and the calling to show undeniable evidence of life transformation begins at the moment of salvation and doesn't stop until we get to heaven and God says, now you're complete. I am so Oh, Lord, help me not to say what I want to say here. I'm so weary of the concept that we just are, are on this kind of, kind of journey and just kind of 
meandering to heaven. No, I'm sorry, no. I'm saying this to myself. I've been saved 40 years. No. Press on, move forward, move on to maturity. Put aside the sins of your childhood. Move on and become like Christ. We got to quit meandering and start running. But the Christian church has become so passive, like, well, we just kind of... I don't see that anywhere in my Bible. Not anywhere. I run the race, not as one beating the air, but I run efficiently, looking at the prize of Christ Jesus that's set before me. Oh, Christian, we've got to start living like that. Because that's what we're called to. We're called to be partakers of the gospel. We have to be people of conviction. And here's what we're fighting against. And the Lord put this on my heart yesterday morning as I was driving. We're fighting against the fact that we live in the culture of avoidance. We live in the culture of avoidance. This is particularly true when it comes to holding righteous convictions. We won't even say biblical convictions yet. I'm just talking about what's right. Let me give you evidence. In the State of the Union speech, it's been noted even by the secular media that the president refused to name Islam in any way, even though ISIS has it in its name. And he has steadfastly refused to connect it in any way to terrorism. On Friday, Republicans in Congress, at the last minute, and I'm saying Republicans for a reason, they dropped a bill that would ban effect, uh, elective abortions after the 20th week of pregnancy, because as one representative said, I prefer that we avoid these very contentious social issues. One lobbyist testified before Congress, and I am not making this up, that the reason we should not ban elective abortions after the 20th week is because it wouldn't create one job and it would be harmful to the environment. I'm not kidding. I watched the video last night. Now, then, on top of that, and I'm not trying to be depressing, I, I, was, I was struggling with whether to even share this this morning. Not to be depressing, but there's the rejection of truth because it is more important to be self-centered. One of the members, founding members of the Newsboys, Christian band, now has renounced Christ, declared himself an atheist, and I want you to listen to the reason why he did this. He said, I've always felt uncomfortable with the strict rules imposed by Christianity. All I want to do is create and play rock and roll. And yet, most of the attention I received was focused on how well I maintain the impossible standards of religion. I wanted me, my life to be measured by my music, not by my ability to resist temptation. Did you get what he's saying? He is saying, I reject Christ because it's not comfortable for me. I will reject the fact that Jesus died and rose again for me and delivered me out of my sin, which I caused. I reject that because it's not comfortable. And then, in a brilliant moment of irony, he says, Christian music is populated by many people who act as though they have a direct hotline to God which supplies them with the answers to the universe. There seems to be more ego and narcissism among Christian musicians than their secular counterparts. Of course, he completely missed this statement. 
The problem with this illogical reasoning is that it's taking hold in the thinking of our culture. And at the same time, there's an increased pressure on those of us that trust Christ and live by his word that it's offensive to believe in the Bible and you cannot believe any convictions that would seem at all judgmental or restrictive of what people want to do, even though that's exactly what they're telling us. And now, this same reasoning is within the body to the point that defending the word and defending holiness can now make a believer in the body a pariah rather than somebody that we look to that say, thank you that you're defending the faith. I thank the Lord every time I think of you. Now, let's, let's finish. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Do we back off? Do, do we become reasonable and relevant and, and, and just do what we can? Or does the Lord call us to do more? Look at the last phrase in verse 6. And we'll study this verse more next week, but let's just apply it to verses 3 to 5. He says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, on our own, listen now, on our own, we don't have the ability or power to live for Christ. We don't have the ability or power to strengthen the body. We don't have the ability or power to participate in the gospel, which is why the one who set us free and declared us righteous gives us a new nature gives us a renewed mind, gives us his spirit, so every day we will live more like Christ. And he says, the work that I am doing is to refine and shape you to move toward perfection. You're not going to get there while you're on earth, but you must strive for it. I will never, ever, ever, ever be perfect in my actions while I live on earth. God's declared me perfect. He's removed all the sin. But I will not understand perfection till I get to heaven. But that doesn't mean I just throw up my hands and go, well, if I can't do it now, well, then I'm not going to try. We're to strive toward perfection and be faithful to complete the work. Now, the second thought here is, in order to live for Christ, in order to strengthen the body, in order to participate in the gospel, we need his power in our lives. And not just assistance to help us when we feel a little bit incapable. He says, you need to be engulfed by my power so you're equipped to be my disciples. But to be his disciples, last thought, he has to be our Lord. To be his disciples, he has to be our Lord. Listen, Jesus as Savior is easy, right? Wasn't easy for him, but it's easy for us. Christ died for my sins. Christ rose again. If I confess my sin, turn from my sin, and trust in him, he says I will be called a child of God. That's easy. But is he our Lord? Anybody can be saved. But is he our master? Is he our Lord? 
Do we give him everything? Do we lay everything at his feet? Are we conformed to his image? Because that's what a disciple was. A disciple traveled around with the master and took on all the characteristics of the master. So when you somebody saw you, they said, oh, you're a disciple of so-and-so because you look just like him. If we're going to be disciples of Christ, we have to look just like him. And if the Lord is going to be thankful every time he looks at us that he's redeemed us, then he has to not see partial commitment and and worldliness that's woven into our lives and and faith that kind of wavers. He needs to see full devotion. He needs to see wholly set-apart lives, and he needs to see unwavering trust. It's the difference between Corinth and Philippi. Are we going to be Corinth? Is our church going to be Corinth? Or is our lives and our church going to be Philippi? Every time I think about you, I thank the Lord. You guys are partakers in the gospel. And let me tell you, the work that God's begun in you, he's faithful to complete it. Walk with him. Serve him. Love him. Trust him. And that work that's already been birthed in your heart, as you move on to maturity, God will mature you and strengthen you, and you will be a powerful, effective partner in the gospel. Oh, God help us. God help us that we would be that.